0: going on this is the decoding success podcast and you are rocking with your host Matt Labrie what is going on everyone really excited to have you tuned into this episode and to all episodes if you're new to the show I want to welcome you always super super grateful to have new guests and always grateful for those that continuously return obviously we see the back end statistics of the show and the continuous trend upward which is exactly why we continue to show up for you to be able to provide you with value and amazing insights from individuals just like the guests we are bringing to you today. So without going too much further, I want to introduce you to Jordan Rayner, who is the author of the newly released Master of One and the national bestseller of Called to Create. Now, Jordan leads a growing community of Christians that are seeking to more deeply connect their faith with their work. In addition to his writing and his speaking and all that good stuff, Jordan serves as the executive chairman of the tech startup Threshold 360, where he previously served as CEO at after launching a string of successful ventures. A highly sought after speaker, as I previously just mentioned, on the topic of faith and work, Jordan has spoken at Harvard, South by Southwest, Q Ideas, and many other events around the world. On top of that, he has twice been selected as a Google Fellow and served in the White House under President George W. Bush, which is something we actually talk about in this episode. He recently launched The Call to Mastery with Jordan Rayner, which is a podcast and has written for relevant the Gospel Coalition and been interviewed by CNBC, Fast Company, Wired Magazine, and the Startup Camp podcast, just to name a few. Jordan is a sixth generation Floridian. He lives in Tampa with his wife and three young daughters, which is yet another thing we talk about in this episode because I was just curious what baseball team Jordan was rooting for these days. But we're going to get into a whole lot of stuff, and I'm really excited to have you here for this one. And I do want to point something out. If you're not Christian, I promise you that this episode is still monumental in the sense that you could very much so apply Jordan's teachings and his findings from his experiences and all of that good stuff to your life so if Christianity or listen maybe even religion isn't your thing I promise you that you need to stay tuned into this one because this gets deep and it gets really real and having faith in general is the whole concept of this episode on top of many other things that we talk about so bear with us here and I promise you this is exactly what you need to hear today the universe directed you here for a reason so bear with us but before doing that this episode is brought to us by an amazing program that I am so grateful to share with you, which is through our friends over at Acadium. Now, you've heard me talk about Gen M, and I want to let you know that Gen M has just rebranded themselves into Acadium, and I don't want to confuse anyone that's new. Basically, if you are a business owner or if you are someone that's pursuing some passion projects and you're kind of starting out at that base level or you want to know what, maybe you're not at that base level. Regardless, this is applicable to you if you are looking to grow your team, meaning Acadium will be able to provide you with remote marketing interns and soon even more interns outside of the realm of marketing. So if you're looking for help when it comes to email marketing or maybe it's with your website or maybe it's with graphic design, whatever the case is, even social media, right? The list goes on. Acadium has the ability to provide you with remote interns at a very effective and affordable cost. Now, I'm not going to sit here and spill the beans about what it costs. Just promise me, over a three-month time frame, this cost is basically irrelevant for what you are receiving. It is immaculate to say the least and I've personally used them with my agency 1B branding here in New York City I say this over and over and over again because I absolutely love it and I love to share this with you and I love to hear the success stories of everyone that is tuned into this show saying wow like this really revolutionized my business or revolutionized my projects right the list goes on so listen if you want to take advantage of this offer all you have to do is slide up go into the show notes of this episode you can be directed to the link you could even do so while listening to the episode I promise you it is worthwhile to check out. Now, without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Jordan Rayner. Jordan, listen, excited to have you here as one of our first guests of 2020. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Matt. 100%. Listen, first question straight off the bat for everyone that joins the show is how do you personally define success?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I define success as... Focusing intensely on the work that I think I can do most exceptionally well in service of others, and, and and being able to continually do the thing that I've been able to that I that I've been put here on Earth to do. I absolutely
0: love that. So let's dive into that a little bit. You mentioned yeah. focusing intensely. On the work you could do in service of others. Now, yeah. when you say in service of others, that's the part I want to focus on real quick. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like you need personally in place to be able to serve others? And the reason I bring this up is because honestly, I love speaking um, across the country. I haven't spoke out of the country yet. I love doing this podcast. I literally just built a library in my local community here. But at the same time, I realized that my cup wasn't as full as it should have been while I was doing all of those things, mm-hmm. which has caused me stress and worry and fear and anxieties and things of that nature. So I'm curious Curious in your own perspective and your own experiences, um, what needed to be in place for you to serve others to the utmost potential?
1: Yeah. So I think for me, what I mean when I say I want to do work that serves others well is doing the work that I'm uniquely situated to do, right? So for example, uh, I I have a podcast uh, called The Call to Mastery. Uh, my value that I add to that show is in interviewing guests, right? Just like yours is here. It's not a good use of my resources, nor is it service to my community for me to be wasting my time scheduling guests, right? Or doing all the other production and editing that goes along with that, with that podcast, right? So when I say serving others, I'm Talking about doing the work that only I can do uh, within my venture, and uh, you know, I just very much believe that work is service, and I think that will resonate with a lot of people. I think we all have this deep sense that work is not just work; work is not just a means to an end, a means to a paycheck. Work is how we serve others and how we how we serve the world. And so, I take that very seriously, and that leads me to get increasingly focused uh, in my to do list and what I agreed to to add to my uh, plate of responsibilities.
0: Right. I totally love that. So in regards to doing the work that only you can do, how do you evaluate that? I mean, I see this thing online. It's like a little quadrant of like, personally, only things you could do, etc, etc. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, take into account that some of our listeners here may only be getting started out in entrepreneurship, or one of their passion projects may not have the resources, etc, etc. So I'm curious.
1: Yeah. So, in that stage, listen, you got to do everything, right? So, I've started and sold a couple of ventures. I've had the luxury of serving as CEO of a fairly well-financed tech startup. Uh, And so, listen, in the early stages, you got to do everything. But in that process, right, you should be identifying the few things that you do disproportionately well uh, and or you can only ever do, right? So for example, in in a venture, you know, the uh, US CEO have got to be the one casting vision. Only you can do that. You are the leader, you're in the driver's seat of the venture. And so as the venture progresses and as it matures, you're going to be spending more and more time doing that and less and less time doing marketing or sales or whatever the job function is that's easily replicable. by a replicable uh, by somebody else on your team. So for me, in my current venture, I focus on casting vision for my team. Uh, I focus on producing content, like my podcast, like my book, Master of One, stuff that I'm putting my name on. Uh, and I focus on hiring. And that's kind of it. Like those are the three things that I really sink my teeth into uh, within my venture and continually shed stuff that doesn't, you know, isn't in line with those things that I feel uniquely qualified to do.
0: Right. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Jordan. Now, in regards to entrepreneurship, which you mentioned being CEO and, you know, having your hands in other ventures, when did that start for you in regard to like, when did you say to yourself, like, hey, like, I want to be an entrepreneur? Was
1: it in high school, before that, after that? I'm curious. Yeah, so this is pretty accidental. I, I don't even know that I understood what an entrepreneur was until uh, post-college, <laughs> which, which sounds absurd. But, you know, looking back, I think I was always entrepreneurial, right? So when I was eight years old, I set up a baseball card shop right in our neighborhood. And I, I, I was always doing entrepreneurial things. But I actually started uh, my career on a very political path. Uh, I thought I was going to run political campaigns for the rest of my life. I, I, my first job was when I was 17 years old. I ran a, a county-wide campaign here in Tampa, Florida, where I Live uh, that was successful. We won that race. And I, I thought I was going to do that forever. I uh, went to go work in the White House for a little while. Uh, and then along the way, realized that I actually didn't really care about public policy. Uh, I really cared about starting something out of relatively nothing and winning. And that's true political campaigns, but also entrepreneurship. Uh, but, but even then, you know, I, I did a lot of experimentation in my career early on. So uh, I had a job right out of school, where I was basically the entrepreneur, but I worked for somebody else. I was the CEO of this venture that somebody else was funding. Uh, Did that for about 18 months. uh, Was very successful at that until I started my own venture. Sold two companies after that. And yeah, man, uh, entrepreneurship is just... A lot of fun. And that's the one thing that I've been sinking my teeth into for a very, very long time now. I, I just find it very fulfilling to take the raw materials of creation and rearrange them in an interesting way to create more value for the good of others. Right. I think there is absolutely
0: nothing like it, but I have to ask you, I mean, you mentioned baseball. What's your team? I, I know you're down in Florida. Are you going to tell me
1: the Rays? Yeah, so I am. I am. Uh, believe it or not, uh, I'm loyal to uh, to the hometown team. Listen, but I, I've been in Tampa my whole life. I'm a sixth-generation native, so uh, I, I got to stay loyal to the race. I hear that, man. Listen, I totally went against the
0: grain. My father was a Met fan. He still is a Met fan. And um, I was just getting really sick of watching the Mets lose year after year (laughs) after year as a kid. Um, Being born in the 90s, I literally just said to myself, you know what, I'm rooting for the team that keeps beating them. And it was the Atlanta Braves. So I'm an absolute diehard Atlanta Braves fan. That's great. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Listen, so what was it like
1: working in the White House? I believe you were with Bush... Yeah, Bush Forty Three, Bush Forty Three. Right. Yep. So yeah, it was a pretty incredible experience. It was brutal while I was there. Uh, I mean, you're talking ninety hundred hour weeks, uh, pretty consistently, uh, and just getting you know. Uh, harassed, not harassed, but you know, my 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 bosses worked me very hard, but it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, You know, I'm writing pretty much full time now. And I tell people I learned to write at the White House. Literally my first day there, uh, my boss, who is responsible for briefing the president on all things political in the southeastern United States, looked at me and was like, hey, uh, I need a political briefing for the president for me to, you know, brief him on Air Force One tomorrow as I go to Florida with him. I'm like, okay, I'm I better learn how to write. Uh, obviously, my my boss edited that document, you know, uh, a million times. But uh, it was a great crucible for learning how to write well, how to write succinctly uh, and really clear, like fact-based, like nonfiction, essentially, right? So, and that's it's kind of all I did for those four months at the White House. I I wrote a ton, uh, and my wife would my my wife my boss would take that stuff, edit it, uh, and brief the president, the vice president, wherever they were going in the southeast. It was a, it was a really really amazing experience, really amazing time. I was there in the fall of 2006. Uh, so five years after nine 11, I stood in the South Lawn, uh, S- South Lawn of the white house with the vice president and Margaret Thatcher and kind of Lisa Rice and Colin Powell. It was, it was a remarkable experience.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible experience. So if you could only take away like one thing from that time, what do you feel like that one thing would be?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, standing out in your career isn't rocket science right right like I, you show up early work really hard, uh, you know, do what you say you're going to do. Like, I don't know. I I, I just, I felt like, and my boss has told me, I I like really stood out my intern class. And I remember thinking, it doesn't really make sense as to why. Like I didn't think my work product was really exceptional, but I was always there. I was always there early. I always worked hard. I always did what I said I was going to do. I just, I think a lot of young people think that success is this insanely high bar that they have to clear. Like early in your career, the bar for success could not possibly be lower. Like, do what you say you're going to do, write things down, respond to emails in a timely fashion, work hard, and you'll stand out from, you know, 90 plus percent uh, of your competition. Right. And I think
0: what you just said in regards to showing up is literally more than three quarters of it, right?
1: I Yeah, think- it totally I- is
0: yeah I mean, I, at the end of the day, I think people make showing up actually more challenging than it actually is in regard to them not necessarily being willing to do so. And I think um, that topic of willingness is a whole other one that we could dive into here, but um, more so along the lines of your journey, Jordan, what did you have planned in high school? Like I, I want to know the how you fell into entrepreneurship, how it was accidental. So when you were in high school, yeah. when you were in college, what were like who were you? were like yeah. I, I want to know, were we hanging out then? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. Nobody was saying no yeah, so I I was like pretty clear about what I wanted to do from the eighth grade, right? Like I had this American government teacher who it was the middle of the 2000 presidential primaries between Bush and McCain. And I was like mesmerized. This guy made me so interested in politics. And so from the eighth grade, basically through college, I was like, I am gonna run campaigns. Right. Uh, that's all I wanted to do. I, I, I went to Florida State so I could be in the Capitol and do a bunch of political internships. Uh, and actually it was after the White House that my interest started to wane a little bit in, in politics politics. So I came back to Tallahassee. I had a year left in school after the White House. And I was working for the state political party. Well, at the same time, I was working for a political tech startup. So kind of bridging bridging that gap between politics and entrepreneurship. And I just found the tech startup like way more interesting, way more interesting. And so that was kind of the first big pivot of my career. I was leaving college. I was like, all right, I'm not going to run campaigns. I'm going to go work for this tech startup and figure out what's next. But I wasn't like certain I was. I wanted to start my own venture. It was only after I placed that bet, right? That that slightly small bet, my first job out of school, that I started to gain some insight into who I really was and who I was created to be and what I was created to do. So I was like, oh, I'm good at this entrepreneurship thing. And then I placed a slightly bigger bet, right? So I quit that job. Of running somebody else's venture, started my own, had a successful exit there, and then just kind of kept going. And so it's really a story of a series of increasing bets on what's become the one thing that I've really sunk my teeth into, which is entrepreneurship.
0: So in regard to that first venture, correct me if I'm wrong, you said that you had a successful exit. So I mean, at the end of the day, let, let me dive into that a little bit here. What do you feel like were the top characteristics of that venture that, propelled you to be able to do that right um because at the end of the day a lot of people can get into entrepreneurship they have a you know a slow year one and there's that crazy statistic out there like making it past like year three there's it's like an obscure number that you know a lot of businesses don't even get there so i'm Mm -hmm. curious what do you feel like was the characteristics or the systems or the traits or whatever it was that made that venture successful
1: yeah so uh A lot of different things. Listen, I'll say this on the front end. So I'm a Christian. I believe that any success is not of my doing ultimately. Like I really believe you call it luck, call it whatever you want. I believe it's the grace of God. Like I believe it's the grace of God to say that this venture would be successful. Right? So I think that's first and foremost. But you know, strategically, practically, like how that actually manifested, uh, I believe he, I believe God gave me vision for a venture that was uniquely positioned within a market. So, uh, the first venture that I started was a, a political tech startup. So, we built online fundraising software and did digital marketing for political campaigns specifically. So, I, I think we were really focused on a niche. I think we did that really well. I think that was a smart decision. We also had a footprint in Florida, which was very attractive politically, right? And so, there was a firm in DC. Uh, That very much wanted a footprint in Florida. And so we were just a a very natural acquisition target there, right? Uh, So, yeah, I I think just picking the right market and being strategically placed, I think that helps a lot. I think picking the right market is, you know, the vast majority of the work that you got to do early on in a venture. I see so many founders who have got interesting businesses and they're clearly smart, but they're just in the wrong, they're playing the wrong at the wrong table, poker table to kind of extend the analogy, right? So they just have. Haven't chosen the right table to play at, and market choice, market choice is everything. Like I remember sitting down with an investor once, and he's like, you know, everyone will tell you that investors care about team above everything else, right? They invest in teams. And that's kind of true, but this is like, they, they, they invest in markets more than anything else because even the best teams are going to screw up on a pretty big scale. But if you're sitting at a big enough market, it kind of doesn't matter, right? right? Like you could screw up and still create a lot of value and be attractive uh, in an exit. A hundred
0: percent. So you bring up faith. When did faith come into your life? Is it something that's always been there since childhood
1: or... Yeah. So not really. Uh, I, my, 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 household wasn't particularly religious growing up, right? Like we went to Catholic mass occasionally. Uh, it started becoming really important to me in high school and, and really college. And then honestly, a little bit early on in my career. So, um, it's becoming, it's become increasingly important to me. I, I had a venture that ended up having a happy ending, but there was a season where it looked really bleak and it looked like total complete failure, uh, I was drawing an income from the venture and I had to stop doing that because we were running out of cash and couldn't raise capital. I'll tell you what, Matt, like that was a devastating experience for me. Like I it was the only time in my life where I could say I was truly depressed and I'm sure a lot of people listening can understand that feeling if they've had uh, a failed venture and I started to realize that uh, my identity and who I was was so wrapped up in my venture that the venture's failure was almost like death psychologically for me, right? right? The venture died, thus I died. And you know, I went back to my Bible and I went back to the Bible and what it said about uh, who I am because of what Jesus did and what, uh, what he did for me. That gives me kind of my ultimate sense of identity and self-worth. And that like saved my life in a lot of ways. I, I wasn't suicidal, but it saved uh, me from this deep, depression. And so, from that moment on, uh, my faith has really been the most important thing in my life because as an entrepreneur, you have so many ups, so many downs, so many highs, so many lows. you got to have something more secure than yourself or your venture to build your life upon. Otherwise, I don't know how you handle the emotional ups and downs of a startup. Like, it, it's just very, very difficult. And so, uh, I, I, I found that in my faith.
0: Right. I love that, man. Listen, at the end of the day, uh, you kind of beat me to my next question. I wanted to ask you, when did you actually start taking your faith seriously? Because, I mean, I went to Catholic school my entire life. Um, Every, you know, private elementary school, Catholic school, high school, etc. Until college. And, um, you know, I never really took it serious. And I'll even tell you, I went to an all boys seminary school um, in high school. Interesting. Before I got kicked out. I got kicked out (laughs) every one year, but (laughs) that's just me keeping it real. I love it. You know, I never took it serious, and uh, I always use this example. When I was a junior in high school, I was playing basketball for one of probably the top, you know, teams or high schools here in in New York. And it's actually a nationwide ranked uh, basketball program. And everyone had tattoos on the team. And I was like, you know what, I want a tattoo. Like I'm going against what my parents are telling me to do. Like, obviously breaking the law as well, because 16 years old, you can't get a tattoo here in New York, you need to be 18. And I went and I had in God, I trust tattooed across my chest. And it didn't really have the meaning it does today sure. versus back then, right? So I'm always curious as to when individuals, you know, start taking that faith seriously. But being yeah. that you beat me to that question, essentially, I have to kind of transition into the asking you, how can someone remain or continuously build their faith or turn to faith when they're hitting the turbulence of entrepreneurship? So kind of tying everything we're talking about yeah. here in, into one, right? Because oh, man. Um, I, yeah, it, it, it's rough. It gets rough. And, um, you know, it's, it's never... Right. I mean,
1: depression is an epidemic amongst founders. I actually, I should talk about this in my first book. It's called Called to Create. It's basically a guide for entrepreneurs to navigate these waters. And, you know, Again, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. If, if you're building your sense of self-worth, who you are, your identity on you or your venture, you will never be satisfied ever, right? Ever, ever, ever. Because those things aren't secure, right? Ventures, no venture is secure. No person is stable and never changing. And so uh, for me... Uh, I have found it critical in times of um, great turbulence and adventure to remember that at the end of the day, uh, eternally, I am secure. Sure, in the moment, this might be tough. We might have to lay people off. We might run out of cash completely. But Ultimately, uh, I'm okay. Like, I'm safe. I know at the end of the day, in death or life, I am good because uh, of who the Bible says I am. And man, I just, I honestly don't know how you build a venture and navigate the emotional roller coaster of a startup without something as secure as that, right? And it can't even be family because that's not even ultimately secure, right? So, uh, for me, I take great rest. In the fact that the Bible says uh, that Jesus loved me enough to die for me, the God of the universe died for me. That gives me worth. Uh, when when everything else is falling around me, that gives me that gives my life value. That gives me value. And and honestly, you know what's you know what's ironic? It actually frees me to be more ambitious for the work, right? Because I have security there, right? I know right. in success or failure, I'm okay. And so I'm able to take bigger swings, I think. I'm able to take bigger risks because of that security I have, which as an entrepreneur, I mean, that's that's a, that's a game-changing uh, strength to be able to take bigger and bigger swings.
0: Right. Out of total curiosity, you know, you brought up the Bible a few times yep. and being able to turn to it. Do you have a particular suggestion in which Bible you like reading. And what I mean by that is, listen, i studied Latin, but sometimes reading like, you know, the Bible and and the words. Yeah, I'm just like, dude, like,
1: I don't know what this means. Like, do you have a particular one? Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty basic, right? I I, I love the NIV. Uh, New International Version It's pretty standard. New Living Translation is great. The Message Bible is great. If you're just getting started out reading the Bible, it's much easier to read than anything else. Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. But I I, 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 I like to live in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just studying the way right. of Jesus. I think Jesus is a pretty transformative figure, the most transformative figure of all time. So that's kind of where I live in Scripture. I love that. Now
0: staying, you know, I mean, we're talking personal here. I want to ask you man to man. I know you're a married man and I know, um, I I love that. And I know you have children, which is phenomenal, bringing new life into this world. I got to ask you, how did you find yourself balancing business and entrepreneurship with that? Because listen, I struggle with it, right? I mean, I I was just in an amazing relationship and next thing you know, it was, it was gone in the blink of an eye because of this shit. And, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not just business because she was an entrepreneur too, but Um, in regards to the self-deprecating thoughts that can creep in when you are in business and when things are going so well and you hit your upper ceiling? Like, I'm just curious, man. Like, what was your experience like?
1: That's a really good question. So I'll say this. I think... I think you just have to recognize the obvious, which are like startups are easier if you're not married <laughs> and, and don't right? have kids. Like, that's just a reality if you care about doing all of those things well, right? And I believe in excellence in all things. I'm not going to commit to anything, be it fatherhood or marriage or a venture, unless I can say I can do all of them with excellence at the same time, uh, which, by the way, leads me to do very few things at a time vocationally, right? Professionally, because I'm committed to being an excellent father and husband. Uh, but for me, Yeah, man. Uh A couple of practical things. Number one, as a father, I just had to make a commitment as I was running this last venture, uh, Threshold 360, got about a hundred team members. Uh, I was running a CEO. I had to make a commitment that I wasn't going to be on the road that much, right? So I only traveled, let's call it three to five nights a month, which sounds crazy, right? When you're in that rapid growing environment. Uh, But that was the commitment I made to make it work at home. Second thing was, you know, I I think it's inevitable to talk to your spouse about your work. And I think that could be a good thing. Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, leave work at work. I'm like, no, work's such a huge part of who I am. It's not my ultimate identity, but it's a big part of who I am. And so I talk a lot about it with my wife, but there has to come a point where it stops, right? And so for my wife and I, Uh, we're pretty serious about on Sundays, we just don't talk about work. We don't talk about anything productive, period, right? Right. Uh, we, We just try to let that be a day. And we're not legalistic about it, but we just try to let that be a day where we just sit back and enjoy the good things of life. Our family, drink a good beer that I've been saving all week, right? Like just... Uh, be thankful and stop striving. And that that's so hard for me as an entrepreneur, man. Like, it's so hard. But I think the discipline is really healthy, right? And healthy for my marriage, but also healthy for me personally. Yeah,
0: 100%. 100%. I think, you know, point one in regards to making the commitment to not be on the road that much. And, and, uh, you know, making that sacrifice is huge, man. I think that's the name of the game, right? At a certain point, it's just like, you know, you have to make sacrifices for the greater good. And, um, I I love that you did that or
1: that you do that. Right. uh, Yeah. And listen, I'll say, you know, it's, some people see that as a disadvantage, but I think ultimately having kids and having a wife uh is a tremendous advantage as a founder like I just have very different perspectives i'm much healthier emotionally and spiritually right because of them uh, but i 'm committed to excellence in all things, and if ever things get out of whack and I can't fulfill all my roles of excellence, something's got to go and that's never going to be my family. Right? So, right. a very, very practical example. So I stepped down as CEO of Threshold 360 about a year ago. I'm now chairman of the board. Uh, I recruited a replacement for myself and a, a big part of why I did that was because I was on the road too much, right? Like, you know, my goal was three nights a month uh, that I was away and it was pretty consistently starting to get five, six nights uh, a month. Which doesn't sound like a lot of travel to a lot of people, but for my family that was too much. And so once that once it became clear that the CEO of Threshold really needed to be on the road that much, and that was out of line with what I was willing to do, I knew it was time to make a change. And that wasn't that wasn't easy. Threshold was the, is the most successful venture I've run, and uh, the team. It was so much fun uh, running that venture day to day. But I knew I had to step away. So how did you find yourself
0: stepping away? This is what's going to make me curious here because oftentimes we treat businesses or our businesses as our babies, right? They're our creation. Mm -hmm. We brought them into the world. Like, is it because you knew that it was your family and what you were sacrificing in that regard that made it quote unquote easier for you to do?
1: yeah that made it easier the other thing that made it easier was I wasn't technically the founder I, I think if you ask a lot of employees they would consider me a co-founder of threshold 360 but i'm not I'm not a founder uh there right, were two right. founders there 18 months before me I was the CEO that brought the company to market right uh chose chose a business model you know brought us to market got our first sales uh, but that helped too it was never really at the end of the day, my baby. I mean, in a lot of ways it was, I felt like it was, right? And it was, don't get me wrong, it was unbelievably difficult to walk away. It was the hardest decision I've ever made professionally because I had a blast running that venture. Uh, but I knew I had to do it for, for the good of my family. Here, here's the other thing too. I also came, we also came to a place in the venture where I realized there was, we were so successful, there was so much momentum, that there was probably somebody better to lead the venture in the next stage, right? So, I'm a really good startup CEO. I'm very good from going from zero to one. I'm not all that interested in going from one to 1.1 to 1.2. And threshold's still growing at an incredible pace. But, I wanted somebody in the driver's seat that had more management experience, right? So I took it from zero to, or, or and I'd say about five people to about 50 people. Uh, but then we, we recruited an executive who was just phenomenally smart and talented and had a ton of management experience at Nokia, at Microsoft, and a bunch of other blue chip companies. Uh, and he's just doing a phenomenal job as CEO today. And I, I, I couldn't be more confident in my choice, uh, our choice, uh, me and the co-founders, uh, to have him lead the venture.
0: You know, I really respect the fact that you had that much self awareness, and you didn't necessarily have any ego, right? I, I think that's you know, I would say no remarkable. ego.
1: I wouldn't say no ego. I definitely have an ego. I think we all do. But here's the deal, man. I think, um, you know, oh, oh, gosh, it's so hard. The, the I think I could have done the job. I, like And my, my board told me that when I told them I was going to step down. They're like, you can be the guy to take this thing the distance. And I think that was true. Uh, but somebody else was better qualified to do it right then and needed no on-the-job training. And we talked a lot at Threshold. We continue to talk a lot about this, about what is best for the venture. I, I, I'll give you a great example. When I was CEO, uh, my director of marketing, wicked talented guy. Right. Super, super talented guy came to me and he had been there, I don't know, year and a half, two years. It was like, hey, I no longer believe that I have the skill set that's necessary for this role. I love the venture but I value my equity too much. I value the venture too much to say that I'm the best person to stay in that role. And that's just kind of the culture of the company. It's always been the culture of the company. And he was right. Like, and, And it pained me to admit it because he was a friend and he was a great director of marketing for the season that he was there, but he was right. And so, he left on his own accord. Like he and I kind of mutually agreed that, that he should leave. And we were recruited a recruiter replacement that had the skill set that we needed for that season of the venture. But like, where does that happen? Like, I, I just don't see that a lot in startups. And so we we're just very fortunate to have a culture that put the venture and the mission above everything else. Right. I mean, at the
0: end of the day, culture is massive in, in growth and in scaling and in all that. So to be able to have that type of culture is phenomenal. I absolutely love that. Now, Jordan, let me ask you, you know, I, you mentioned your book earlier, Master of One. Yeah. I, I want to dive into this here and I yeah, want to sure. start with the title. I would love for you to elaborate on it. Master of One, find and focus on the work you were created to do. And I'm really grateful your team sent over a copy of it. It's a, an amazing book. I'm not at the end of it yet. I'm still going through it. So I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm curious, you know, <laughs> elaborate on that title for us. Yeah,
1: so this is somewhat autobiographical. This is not an autobiography, but 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 a big part of my story that we've been talking about is embedded into it, right? So for the first part of my career, I was the quintessential Jack of All Trades master of none, right? And and actually, you know, it's funny, we've kind of bastardized this phrase over time. Supposedly, Benjamin Franklin was the first person to utter this phrase. And what he said was, be a jack of all trades and a master of one, right? So uh so and here's the deal, right? I have no problem being a jack of all trades, right? I think it's inevitable uh, as you experiment with a bunch of different things professionally. But I do have a really big problem with being described as a master of none. Again, I believe that work is service. I believe that work is how we help people and move the world forward. And thus... uh, If there's nothing I can point to professionally and say I'm masterful at, that's depressing, right? Like I am not okay with that, right? So I believe that the opposite of mastery is mediocrity and mediocrity is nothing short of a failure of loving others and loving the world. And so I found a much better strategy to be, yes, embrace being a Jack or Joe of all trades, but find the one thing that you're going to go really big on, really deep on. And that doesn't necessarily mean specialization. We can get in that nuance if you want, right? But uh, yeah, it, it does mean being able to articulate what your world class at and uh, focusing more and more of your time and energy and attention on that thing. So in the book, in Master of One, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm helping readers find the one thing worth going big on vocationally uh, and focus on it and absolutely Master it in service of others. So let me ask you: to the point of mastering
0: one thing, do you believe that you can master more than one thing at a time? No,
1: I think you can master more than one thing in a career. Sure, I think Michelangelo, Da Vinci, are great examples of that. But uh, and and listen, I shouldn't say you can't. I think it's exceptionally rare to be able to master more than one big thing at at a single time, vocationally. Now, I'll caveat this by saying this. I think most people's one thing is really broad. And I talk about this in the book, right? So some people's one thing is super specific. Uh, This guy, Bob, who tunes my piano at my house. uh, Tuning pianos is the only thing Bob has done for more than 30 years. Not surprisingly, he's great at it. He doesn't even need to use the little, you know, thing that shows you what note you're hitting. Like, he's incredibly good at his craft. His one thing is super specific. But C.S. Lewis, who I talk about in my book, uh, famous author of Chronicles of Narnia, a bunch of other stuff. His one thing was super broad, right? So his one thing was teaching, uh, as, as evidenced by a conversation I had with his stepson. Uh, and so he applied that one thing in a couple of different contexts to writing fiction, to writing nonfiction, to teaching at Oxford and as a BBC radio broadcaster. But he very much viewed all of those things as connected by this skill of teaching that he was purposefully practicing. So for me, my one thing is entrepreneurship, right? When I was running Threshold and writing the book at the same time, I was applying that one thing to, to in two areas, which I very much believe are the same skill set. But even I came to a place uh, where I decided for a bunch of different reasons, for family and for the sake of getting more focused on my career, to focus even more intensely on just bringing content products to market instead of software, right? And that's all I do now. That's 100% of my time is focused on bringing content products to market, like my podcast, uh, like my book. Etc. Right. So, going a little
0: bit deeper on mastering more than one thing at a time, yeah, yeah. do you feel like um, it? I mean, from what I'm understanding, I mean, it just sounds like you can do it. Like you said, it, it may be rare, it may be unicornish, but when you're going broad, do you feel like it just takes more time versus when you go deep and it's a little bit quicker?
1: I think it's exponentially quicker. I don't think I, I don't All think right. it's I don't think it's anywhere close. Here's the deal, right? So uh, most people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, are familiar with the 10,000 hour rule, made famous by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and so you know, if, if it's going to take 10,000 hours of purposeful practice to get great at something, uh, like world class, masterful at something, just do the math. Like I I don't know, it, it's incredibly difficult to master more than one completely different thing at the same time. It just defies the laws of time and trade-offs.
0: Right. No, 100%. I'm trying to tie this in because oftentimes we have individuals hop on the show and, you know, we kind of get mixed reviews about how many things you should pursue at one time and, you know, whether that's like if you... and. Again, just taking into consideration um, the demographic of the audience here. Uh, I know I have a lot of people that are just starting out in business, or you know, transferring or transitioning from corporate into entrepreneurship, or straight from college into entrepreneurship. So, uh, oftentimes, people hop on the show and they talk about you know only doing one thing at a time, and then the other people are talking about listen, do as many things as you want as long as you're passionate about them, et cetera, et cetera. So, (laughs) I just like getting you know people's opinions on these things.
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. So, I'll say this. Early in your career, your one thing is not to focus. It's to experiment as widely and quickly and cheaply as possible in search for the one thing that you're really going to sink your teeth into. Right. Right. Uh, and I think that's so. I mean, Greg McEwen talks about this in Essentialism, right? Essentialists, ironically, actually explore more, explore more options before committing to whatever that option is. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. So in the book, I outline a four-step path to mastering anything vocationally. Step one is experimentation and exploration, right? And I I, I celebrate experimentation. I had so many different jobs in college, right? Uh, I, I had a different internship every single semester. Most were political, but some were not. I played piano at a wine bar. I had a bunch of different part-time jobs, right? I, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. But at some point in your career, if you, if you care about doing exceptional work in service of others, and some people don't, right? But I do, uh, I think you got to make a choice. I think you got to go all in and commit to something. So that's the se- second step is commit. Third step is eliminate. And the fourth step is mastery. But I, I think a lot about, uh, do you know Charity Water there in New York City? Yes, by Sean Harrison, I believe his yeah, name is. Scott, Scott yeah, Scott Harrison. So, Scott Harrison, Scott Harrison. So if you guys don't know, Charity Water has raised Uh, more money for clean water projects than any other nonprofit in the world. They provided clean water to about 10 million, I think it is now, people who previously did not have clean water in the developing world. And Scott, I tell Scott's story in Master of One. He's one of about 25 different people, most of them entrepreneurs who who are profiled. And, you know, Scott had this, he really wanted to start a nonprofit right? Uh, He very much wanted to do that. He wanted to solve all the world's problems, right? So he wanted to tackle education in the developing world and water and sanitation and plumbing and all of these different things. And he had a mentor in his life who's like, Scott, stop trying to do it all. Focus on one intensely and then move on to everything else. And so Scott's like, great, I'll start with water. And then in two years, we'll move on to sanitation or whatever. And guess what? We're 10 years into charity water, however long it's been. And they're still just doing water, right? And Scott attributes this focus, this focusing on one thing, to their massive success in solving one of the greatest humanitarian problems uh, of our time, right? And so, I I just I think there's a lot, a lot, a lot of wisdom in that strategy. You can glean for people in the nonprofit and the for-profit sector. A hundred percent, man. I, I appreciate you
0: sharing that, Jordan. I got to ask you, you know, why write this book at this point in your
1: journey? Like what what came yeah. to you and said, it's time to write this? That's a great question. So honestly, it, it was a lot of the internal angst and struggle I had while I was, you know, uh, running threshold. So as I was running threshold, um, I had had another book that was released. So I had finished writing a book called "Called to Create in... Uh, like October 2016, right as I took over Threshold as CEO. I just finished writing the book. The book came out a year later. That's how traditional publishing works. It's crazy slow. Uh, and so once that book came out, man, it just took off, took off. I just kept selling and selling and selling without me doing much uh, in in marketing the book. And so there was a lot of fruit there. There was a lot of fruit at threshold. Both of them were growing kind of exponentially. And I just realized like, yeah, you know what? these are both expressions of my one thing of entrepreneurship. One was bringing a software product to market. The other was bringing a content product to market. But I knew uh, that to do either of them to the very best of my ability, I had to focus on one. I couldn't keep doing both. And so I had that angst and uh, yeah, I I, I just decided I had to get even more focused So that's part of what led to the development of Master of One.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. I love it. Now, if individuals can only take away one thing from the book, what do you want that one thing to be and why?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably – Me kind of attacking this conventional wisdom uh, to follow your passions, (laughs) which you alluded to a few minutes ago. Uh, So I'm I'm a millennial. I think you're a millennial, Matt. You know, we grew up hearing our parents and every adult in our lives say, follow your passions, follow your dreams, do whatever makes you happy. Um, And there's a lot to love about that. Uh, but it turns out that this is like really bad advice, uh, mostly because it doesn't work, right? So we have, millennials have had more opportunity to do whatever makes us happy vocationally, and yet Gallup and every other poll tells us that we are the least happy generation at work, right? Something's not working here. And in Master of One, I talk about why, right? So I cite uh, this academic study couple of academic studies, but one in particular that's really interesting from a professor at Yale who has spent her entire career trying to understand what makes people describe their work as a calling as opposed to a job or a career. And the number one predictor across entrepreneurs, computer programmers, doctors, clerical workers, et cetera, the number one predictor is not whether or not somebody was passionate about the work before they started it. The number one predictor of somebody describing their work as a calling is the number of Years they have spent practicing the discipline, right? So passion is a side effect of mastery. You get to love what you do by getting really, really good at it. Now, that's not to say you have no passion or no love for the work when you start it. You have to. Otherwise, why would you start the work in the first place? But the point is passion grows with competency. Passion grows with mastery over time until you get that deep, soul level satisfaction, just that feeling that like, yes, this is the work that I was put here on earth to do. So if you get anything out of the book, that's what I hope you take away. A
0: hundred percent. Jordan, I need you to break this down one more time for me. I don't want yeah, yeah. to miss this. You said passion is a side effect of mastery. Can you just dive yeah. into that a little bit deeper?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of us think that, uh, you know, if we have a pre-existing passion, say entrepreneurship, right? You're sitting there, you're like, man, I really want to start a business, right? I really want to start my first business. I think most of us believe, although we might not articulate it like this, I think most of us believe this lie that, all right, well, if I'm passionate about entrepreneurship, as soon as I start my business, I'm going to find this deep happiness in my work that's sustainable over a long period of time. But Matt, you, you know that's not true. Starting a business is freaking hard, right? So right. one of the hardest things you can do. There's a lot of pain that goes in it, And a lot of it isn't fun, but you get that deep, sustainable passion and love of your work as you get progressively better at the craft, right? Because I believe work was designed to be service to others, right? If work is about serving others and making other people happy, then it stands to reason that our happiness will follow serving other people really well. That's why I say you get to love what you do by getting really good at it. And by the way, the Bible backs this up, which is why I'm confident it's an eternal truth that will never, ever change. But so does academic literature. The Yale professor I just mentioned Uh, I'm I'm not sure uh, if she's a Christian or not. I have no reason to believe that she is or is not. But I do know that she's uncovering uh, a really deep truth of the world that that passion and vocational joy uh, only grows as you get better at your craft. So we shouldn't be telling young people, follow your passions. We should be telling them, follow your giftings. Like What do you think you can be really exceptional at in the world? And you might be slightly passionate about that today, but don't Put all your eggs in the passion basket. Don't expect cosmic level passion on day one of starting that job. It's going to grow over time,
0: right? See, I, I resonate with that on such a high level because the thing is, I'm super passionate about baseball. I'm super passionate about things right. that I. It's not that I can't play it, but I don't want to dedicate my life to playing baseball in a recreational league either. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, right. Uh, I, I definitely, definitely resonate with that on a high level, and I appreciate you breaking that down. And Jordan, I mean. This book is coming out the 21st, which as mentioned earlier in the show, that's going to be tomorrow when this episode airs. I want to talk about the trip that you're giving away for individuals <laughs> yeah, that pre order yeah. this because if, yeah. if, they're, if they've been rocking with us this long throughout this episode, they deserve to know about this. And yeah. I know about it, but I want to hear about it from your words because it's incredible. I've been to a couple of the places that are mentioned within the description on the website. It's absolutely amazing what you're doing here.
1: Yeah. So I think most authors pre-order campaigns are like super lame, right? So it's like <laughs> it's like pre-order my book and download a free chapter. It's like, that's the lamest thing in the world. So we go, I, I'm going totally over the top uh, to convince you to order Master of One before January 27th. That's a deadline. But if you go on Amazon, order the book or wherever you buy books, and then go to JordanRainer.com and tell me you ordered the book. Uh, You're going to be entered to win a trip for you and a friend uh, to go to Europe. Uh, So you're going to go on a seven-night European cruise to Italy, France, and Spain. Then I'm going to fly to Barcelona and take you to dinner. And then you're going to go on a private tour of La Sagrada Familia, which I talk about in the book. It's the world's largest church. Uh, It's been under construction for 135 years. It's one, of the most spectacular things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, It's still under construction, which is mind-boggling to me, but it was designed by a true master of one. It was designed by this architect uh, named Gaudi, who spent the first years of his career doing a bunch of different creative entrepreneurial projects until he caught a vision for this church. And he said, you know what, this is my one thing. I'm going all in. And he spent the last 12 years of his life only focused on that project. He died working on it. He's buried there in the church. Uh, just an incredible story. So you're going to be able to see that story in real life in Barcelona, one of my favorite cities. So yeah, step one, go on Amazon, pre-order or order, I guess the the, the book's out now, order Master of One, uh, and then head over to jordanreinder.com to enter to win the trip.
0: That is honestly incredible. Listen, France is my favorite country. I was there last summer really? and uh, I have French background and yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my mother's Italian, my father's French and I have a lot of family still in France and I can't say I've seen any of the family, but I've definitely seen relatives all throughout the French Riviera in Paris. That's awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was phenomenal. It was really, really phenomenal. So I just want to let people know like this is a trip of a lifetime to say the least. Plus they get to have dinner with you on top of it all. Uh, talk about putting the cherry on top. Uh, that it's is phenomenal. It's basically just an
1: excuse for me to get to go to Barcelona. Let's be honest. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it, Jordan. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I do want to respect your time. I have four to five questions that we typically ask every interview to exit the show. The first one being, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Why was it given to you and who gave it to you?
1: Uh, Best piece? I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about the book. Uh, I open up the book with the story of a mentor of mine who you know, about halfway through the first 10 years of my career. So about five years ago, he just looked at me, he's like, dude, you're doing so many different things. What are you really going to sink your teeth into? Uh, He was telling me to focus. He was telling me to be a master of one. That was the best advice. Why was he giving it to me? Uh, Because I was a mess of focus. I I was doing a million different things and doing none of them exceptionally well. And I think that's a story uh, of a lot of us. Right. A hundred percent. All right, cool. So on the flip
0: side of that, what was a piece of advice that was given to you that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given,
1: but proved to be true over
0: time? That's the one, man.
1: I hated hearing that. I, I remember being really offended. Uh, at hearing that this idea oh I'm not doing like everything well and like I need to focus like this idea of focus felt so um so limiting to me and so constraining and over time I found there's tremendous freedom uh in in in, in focusing on the thing that gives you the most joy and brings joy to, to to others like that that's there's a lot of freedom there.
0: Right. So getting personal here, what is the one thing that Jordan wants to be remembered for?
1: I want to be remembered for doing everything with excellence in service of others. Be that my family, my wife, um, or those that I serve through my work. I love that. Last question for you, Jordan. If you could only give
0: one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what is that one piece of advice?
1: Find something to base your life on that is secure and never, ever changing.
0: I love that listen you I mean, you mentioned that earlier right when in in regard yeah. to the Bible, like yeah. the, the, it's all tying together here that that's yeah.
1: beautiful, yeah, that's it. That's it. I can't think of anything better than that.
0: I, I love that, man. Now, where can people keep up with you on social? Uh, well, yep. I should say, where are you most active on social? Because I'm going to have all your social links in the show notes anyway. Sure. The websites, where to get the book, all that good stuff. But I know people like to, from our community, like to engage with the individuals that hop on the show. So um, just directing them to a place where you are most active would be great.
1: Yeah, I love that. So, JordanRainer.com is the best place. Uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, pretty active uh, on Instagram, and then my podcast. I mean, we're talking to a podcast audience. I've got a – we think it's a great show. Uh, It's called The Call to Mastery. We sit down with somebody who's world-class at their craft every week. Uh, We just had the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton Uh, We've had people from Dave Ramsey's team. We've had uh, a world-class ballerina, professional ballerina. So people from a bunch of different vocations. Uh, We just sit down and talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits and their routines and how their faith impacts their work. Uh, So it's a really, really fun show.
0: I love that, man. I love that. I appreciate you hopping on here, Jordan. Really excited for everyone to check out the book and potentially win that trip to Europe. That'd awesome. to <laughs> that would
1: if, be hey, so if one, awesome. Hey, if one of your listeners wins, you should come over. You should come over Listen, to Barcelona for the trip.
0: Let me know who wins. I need to know. So where where are you going
1: to be announcing the winner? Uh, we'll be announcing the winner everywhere. So on social, on my email list. Uh, so yeah, if you if you follow along, I mean, obviously I'm going to notify them personally one-on-one right 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 uh, but we'll be announcing it to the world on instagram and twitter and linkedin and all those places
0: okay great great yeah listen if, yeah, yeah. if i know someone from the community so is fun. winning i'll be in there too i promise you that'd be you that.
1: awesome that'd be awesome matt thank you so much for having me buddy
0: i appreciate it jordan thank you again man And there you have it. Now, that is a conversation that I am absolutely thrilled to have had and even more thrilled to be able to amplify it to all of you that are tuned in right now. So Jordan, if you're tuned into this, man, shout out to you. I had an absolute blast chopping it up with you. It was an absolute pleasure. And to that point, I wanna make sure that everyone is connecting with you on social. So if you are tuned into this right now, simply by scrolling up to go to the show notes of this episode, you are able to find all of Jordan's social handles. And side note of the side note, how about this? You have the opportunity to go to Europe on Jordan simply by pre-ordering his book. Like, that is an absolute no-brainer. The best part is I will be there if you win, so let's make this happen. I need someone from the Decoding Success community to win, and I'm really excited if one of you do because now that gives me an excuse to go to Barcelona to have dinner with you and with Jordan, which is absolutely phenomenal. If you haven't been to Barcelona, some of the best paella in the world, and I will say that, like, absolutely beautiful views and things of that nature as well, but, like, I'm stoked for the paella if someone wins. (laughs) Totally besides the point, I want to make sure you're pre-ordering the book regardless and connecting with Jordan on social. Really had an amazing time chopping it up with him, as you could see. So what I'm going to do now is dive into three of the many points that resonated with me on a super high level. And the one that I want to start out with is the word sacrifice. Now, Jordan was alluding to and elaborating on what he had to do when I asked him from man to man what it took to be an entrepreneur and also make his relationship with his wife and his family work, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm over here 27 years old and I'm hustling so much. And I'm so focused on all the shit that I have to get done that it interferes with the relationships that I'm trying to build with significant others. So I really appreciate the fact that Jordan alluded to the sacrifices that he's had to make. And it made me realize that maybe I wasn't making the right sacrifices in the situation. So I really want everyone to take that into consideration. It's not necessarily about being an entrepreneur. It's more so about, What do you have to sacrifice to get what you truly want in life? And sometimes we're not willing to sacrifice things, which is why we stay in the same position, right? And I think the word willing is absolutely huge. And that's a whole other topic that we'll dive into another day. But I really appreciate Jordan sharing the the point about sacrifices. The next point I want to bring up is how Jordan mentioned passion is a side effect of mastery. Now I'm going to tie in point two and point three together because point three is going deep and not wide in regards to the fact that if you want to master something, it takes 10,000 hours or 10,000 repetitions. So to the point that Jordan alluded to, it's a lot easier to hit 10,000 hours or 10,000 repetitions when you're solely focusing on one thing if you're focusing on five if you do the math it's just not as quick and hey it's not it's not as quick if you're doing five things as if you're doing one so uh you know if you're looking to develop passion i think it really does come down to being able to master something when you master something you love it right when when you're great at something you and you develop that over time you love it i mean i alluded to it in the episode i'm absolutely a diehard passionate baseball player uh, or sport player in general but i'm at a point in my life where i can't do that for a living anymore and if even well, maybe I'm limiting myself by saying that. So, let me not go that far. But to that point, you get what I'm saying in a way, right? Like you you understand the reality of what I'm, you know, trying to convey here. So, Point one, again, is the sacrifices that we need to make to have what we want in life. And it's not about being an entrepreneur. It's not about finding a significant other. It's like, what do you want in your life? Personally, you, yes, I'm talking to you. What do you want? And what do you have to sacrifice to get it? You need to weigh those sacrifices. You need to literally, you know, sit there with a pen and pad, write it out, talk it out with someone. You have to identify what that is for you to be able to achieve it. Point two is passion is a side effect of mastery. And point three is mastery comes. from going deep and not wide by being able to put in 10,000 hours or 10,000 reps into something that you are Mastering, I think it's absolutely huge. And Jordan, I really appreciate you sharing all of these points. And listen, I could give a hundred more points from this episode. I had an absolute blast chopping it up here with Jordan. So again, I want to make sure that you are connecting with him on social. Make sure you are pre-ordering his book, which comes out tomorrow, to say the least. It comes out tomorrow, but you still have until the 27th, as Jordan mentioned in this episode, to get yourself into that contest to win a trip to Europe, which is freaking amazing. And I want you to win because I wanted to go. I want to go. And that's not me being selfish, that's just me wanting to spend some time with you and Jordan and, you know, like I said, the paella too. But um, on top of that, if you found this episode to be valuable, if you could leave us a rating and review, if you haven't yet, that would mean the absolute world to us. Listen... You know, we fell short of our goal in 2020 and I'll be the first one to tell you um, that happens. That happens in life. But I'm really grateful for all that have already participated and all that have already contributed to our community in that regard. So if you haven't yet, especially if you're tuned in from iTunes or Apple, whatever the hell it's called these days, I really want to express how grateful we would be for you taking less than five minutes out of your day um, in regard or in exchange for the value that Jordan and I provided here on this episode. It would mean the absolute world to us. Um, On top of that, listen, let's talk on social. If we're not connected already, hit me up. I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode, and I would love to hear your thoughts about how we should move forward with this show. So until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.